Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into it, into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and the nobles, do not let people, animals, herds, or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let the people and the animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God, and let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what um, they did and how they had turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring them the destruction he had threatened. I'm just going to pray before Steve comes. Dear Lord, I pray that we will um, forget about the busy week that lies ahead. I pray, Lord, that we will just focus on... um, the talk that we're about to hear. I pray, Lord, that we'll be challenged, but also um, we will um, take a bit of confidence from it. And I pray that it'll be your words, Lord, um, as Steve comes to speak. Amen. Amen. It's a wonderful prayer. Take a bit of confidence from Jonah chapter 3. Jonah 3 is such a hopeful passage. It's hopeful on a personal, a global, and a local level personal, we look at a prophet who himself has the hardest of hearts and God can get through to the hardest of hearts. There's hope. On a global level, we see the most evil tyrannical ruler of the day who was murderous being converted and his whole empire. And on a local level, we see a city that is far from God receiving God's forgiveness and it gives us hope. If you want hope today, personally, On a global level, at a local level in this city, Jonah 3, as has been prayed, should give you confidence. It should give you hope. It should fortify your soul. In chapters 1 and 2, we see that God's power was able to get through to Jonah. In chapter 3, we see God's power is able to get through to the king of Assyria and to the Assyrian Empire and the city of Nineveh. To the best of my knowledge, Jonah chapter 3 is the first recording of a revival in ancient history. It's remarkable. 120,000 people, it's the biggest city of its day, repent. And God says they were wicked and violent, and yet they repent. So it's a great passage for us to consider as we think about a world at war and tyrannical rulers of what God can do. And as you think about our city, where so many seem so far from God and so few seem that interested in the things of God, that God has power 
It's easy to despair, isn't there? Is there any point? Is it worth me trying? Is anyone listening? Is anyone open? Will anything change the city? Will anything change my friends, my family, my colleagues' hearts and turn them to God? It's easy to lose hope. It's easy to lose hope. Uh, There's a great need in this city. Well, Jonah 3 gives us hope for God's power to change individual hearts, world rulers, and turn a city around. So the question I want to look at today is how does revival happen? What happens in a revival? This is the first and greatest record of a revival we have in ancient history. What are the hallmarks of revival? What does God do? What do God's people do? And what does it mean then for us to be a church as we think about this great series of being sent to the great city of, not Nineveh, but Dublin? So what's needed for revival? Three things. A weakened and empowered messenger, verses 1 to 3. A contrite heart in the people, verses 4 to 6. And a compassionate God, verse 10. Verses 1 to 3, a weakened and empowered messenger. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Do you see that phrase? A second time. The first thing we learn in Jonah chapter 3 is that Jonah is being given a second chance. Because it's almost, word for word, the exact same uh, command that God gave in chapter 1. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But if you've been with us the last three weeks, you know that Jonah didn't go. He rebelled against God. He goes to the opposite direction, to Tarshish. Things go very sour for him. He ends up in a boat with pagan sailors. A storm comes. He gets thrown into the sea. He ends up in the belly of a great fish. And finally, he comes to his senses and realizes he can't run from God anymore. And he experiences God's grace afresh in the pits of despair. What happens in Jonah chapter 3? Well, we see the extent of God's grace, and Matthew hinted at this last week, that God not only saves us by grace, sustains us by grace, but then he recommissions this foolish and rebellious prophet. He he gives him another go, not just in relationship with him, but in this mission. Question, if you were God, would you have given Jonah a second chance to take on the mission? Would you have disqualified him for his fragrant disobedience? Would you cast him aside and go, I'm going to find another servant, another problem. I mean, this one is just so bad. He's a hopeless servant, a failure of a prophet, and a rebellious and sinful man. And by the way, that is undisputed. You read chapter 1 to 2, there's no wiggle room to say that Jonah's got any inch of goodness in him at this stage. Not an inch, not not a hint. He ran in the opposite direction. But here's what we learn. God loves to give undeniable failures second chances. He's an undeniable failure. He's a rebel. And so was David. Sexual sinner, murderer. He got a second chance in his role. Peter, famously a coward. He got a second chance in his role. Paul was a murderer, a Jesus hater. And he's given a second chance. And in a letter to young Timothy, he writes this, the Apostle Paul, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. He goes on to say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
the Apostle Paul writes, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his what? Immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. It's the undeniable failures that God loves to use because they magnify his grace when he does. They're the best material in the hands of God. Why? Because they're incredibly weak. They have nothing to boast in. They've failed. They've messed up. There's no merit there. Therefore, it's all of grace. It's all of God. God gets all the glory. You feel weak. You feel like a failure. You feel like God couldn't use you. He's like, oh, you're the best material in my hands. You're exactly what I love because you won't get any credit. And you see, when you experience that kind of grace, it also empowers you because you suddenly the pressure's off. It's not like I'm striving to be a really good Christian doing what God, no, I'm a failure and I'm saved by grace and he's given me another chance. Oh, and joyful obedience starts to well up in the heart. Do you remember the story of Jean Valjean? in the famous musical Les Miserables. Jean Valjean is poor and he steals bread and is put in prison for being a thief by Javert, the policeman who can only see him as a law-breaking prisoner, 24601. Eventually, Jean Valjean is released and put on probation and a kindly bishop offers him hospitality and takes him in. Valjean is touched by the man's hospitality, but he's disillusioned by his past, so he robs from the bishop from his only wealth, his silverware. And this is Javert's moment to bring justice. But then remarkably, in the confrontation between the criminal Valjean and the, and the policeman Javert, the bishop surprisingly converts Valjean's lame story that the silverware was a gift from the bishop. And he says, oh, you forgot the candlesticks. Take my candlesticks, because they were also part of the gift. The bishop's costly grace inspires Valjean, and he changes his ways dramatically. He is humbled, and yet his life is transformed. He is empowered. Weakened of all his pride and self-sufficiency, knowing he was an undeniable criminal, beyond all doubt, no wiggle room, and yet he's filled with love by someone that would know the deepest, darkest secrets of his heart and give him a second chance. That's the gospel. This is the Christian faith. Grace first humbles you to the ground, to the dust. I'm an undeniable failure. No merit of my own. I'm no better than Jonah. And yet exalts me to the heavens. I'm loved by the king of kings. And that grace that we're saved by, although we have done no merit, nothing of our own to earn it, grace is never alone because grace changes us and teaches us to say no to ungodliness. As he says, in, Paul says in Titus, and it helps us to walk in God's ways as Jonah now does. So here is the key lesson on revival. The chapter starts with Jonah, God's prophet, being given a second chance and ends with Nineveh, God's, well, not God's city, the pagan city, being given a second chance. As Jonah experiences grace, he can become a conduit of grace to those that need it. In other words, what happens to Jonah happens to Nineveh, as has famously been sung, Lord, send revival. Start with where? My heart. 
I need it first. I need transformation first before I try and bring it to anyone else. You cannot be a messenger of grace until you've first experienced that grace for yourself. But once God gets hold of you, it humbles you and it exalts you. It weakens you and empowers you. For God to bring revival to Dublin, he has to start with us. Paul says in a letter to another church, the Corinthians, that we have this treasure of the gospel of grace, that God loves us despite our sins in jars of clay. Why, why, why are we the ambassadors of God like Jonah and we're just so fragile with jars of clay and we have this treasure, the gospel, why? Ah, Paul says to show that the all-surpassing power is not from the messengers but from God. So what's the application? If you're messed up or if you have messed up, or if you're currently running from God, or you know there's an area of your life you're not willing to submit to God, never disqualify yourself. You're going to need to repent. You're going to need to do what Jonah does and come to your senses, and it might take you to the belly of a wet fish. Repentance is required. There's no way around it. God doesn't sweep sins under the carpet and say it doesn't matter. You need to get right with him, but never disqualify yourself. And you might feel that tension in you, like, I know, I want to live for you, Jesus, but this is what I'm doing, and I feel... Just give in, like Jonah eventually did, and then you'll know grace afresh, and he can use you. He can take your brokenness, rebellion, your weakness, your hardships, and those things won't be a hindrance to him. They'll make you a greater minister for him if you'll experience his grace. Secondly, do you want to be used by God? Do you want to see revival in Dublin? Expect to be weakened. God doesn't go, where's my really strong messengers? Where's my strong church that's going to go and take on this city? But he says, where are those that are just humble and realize they have nothing to offer and are desperate for me? I can use those type of people. Ask to be weakened. Expect to be weakened. It's a scary prayer, but go, Lord, weaken me so that you might empower me. Weakness is the school where God trains his best servants. Just read about that in every prophet and servant of the Old Testament. Read about it in the life of Jesus, Paul, and Peter. They all experienced terrible weaknesses in different ways, and yet they experienced a wonderful power as a result of their weakness. Their weakness didn't get in the way of God doing his work in them. It was the way God did his work in them. The Apostle Paul talks about a thorn in the flesh. Three times he said, Lord, would you remove this thing from me? I don't want it. It makes me feel so weak. It makes me feel so inadequate. It's such a stress in my life. And what did God say to him? But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in being power at weaknesses, in impressive CV, in insults, in having an impeccable in hardships. You see? Because God's not interested in what the world's interested in. I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. May God teach me. May he teach you. He uses people that are weak, not who are strong. He uses people that are messed up, who are failures, who've made it. And he says, now I can make you a trophy of my grace. I can display my immense patience and I can show the world my power, not yours. What is, what's needed for revival in Dublin, firstly, weakened and empowered messengers. Secondly, a contrite heart in the people, verses 4 to 9. 
When Jonah preaches his sermon, it's an eight-word sermon in English, it's five words in the original Hebrew, the whole city repents from top to bottom, from the kings to the servants, from the people to the animals. They believe, they fasted, they put on sackcloth and ashes. I'd love to know what a an animal in sackcloth and ashes looks like. Uh, a decree was issued and everyone should call on the name of the Lord and give up their evil ways and wickedness. That's the repentance. God's grace never negates repentance. There's two sides of a coin. But there's great humility. Verse 9. Who knows? The people of Nineveh say, God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. The people of Nineveh did not presume upon the grace or the compassion or the kindness of God. They did not feel they'd earned it, they didn't feel they deserved it, and they didn't feel entitled, and they didn't sort of say, well, you know, God's compassionate, therefore he'll just let us off. That's what we do, isn't it? God's compassionate, I don't have to deal with it, or just, he's he's a compassionate God, I'll just leave all my junk aside and I won't deal with what's going on. I know. The Ninevites, unlike so many modern Western people today in Dublin, had no problem holding together God's compassion and his fierce anger. Fierce, it says. They had no problem holding those two things together. You see that in the text? They knew they deserved God's fierce anger. They knew they were sinners deserving punishment. They knew the city deserved to be overthrown because of the evil within it. When God judges humanity and he punishes us, he is right. We have sinned, we've rebelled, we've acted wickedly, we've been like Jonah, we've been like Nineveh. We have not sought to please God, we've sought to please ourselves. We deserve death, physical, spiritual, and eternal death. On judgment day, every mouth will be silenced as we realize that the judge of the earth is doing what is right and fair. Like with Jonah, there'll be no wiggle room. It'll be undeniable. No mouth is going to answer back to God on judgment day. You're going to be like Jonah, knowing you are an undeniable failure. The people of Nineveh, when they heard Jonah's preaching of judgment, had the guts to admit it. And they say, who knows? We don't deserve this. But maybe God will have mercy. It is remarkable. But it's not unique. It's happened again in history. Let me read you an account of J. Edwin Orr, which comes from the revival in Northern Ireland in 1859. He says this, the townsfolk of Coleraine witnessed some of the most amazing scenes in the whole movement of Ireland. A schoolboy under deep conviction of sin seemed so incapable of continuing his studies that the kindly teacher sent him home in the company of another boy already converted. On the way home, the two boys noticed an empty house and entered it to pray. At last, the unhappy boy found peace and returned immediately to the classroom to tell his teacher, I'm so happy I found the Lord Jesus in my heart. The innocent testimony had its effect on the class, and boy after boy slipped outside. The master, standing, uh, uh, standing on something to look out the window, observed boys kneeling in prayer around the schoolyard, each one apart. The master was overcome, so he asked the converted schoolboy to comfort them. Soon the whole school was in a strange disorder, and the clergyman was sent for, and remained all day dealing with seekers after peace, schoolboys, schoolgirls, teachers and parents and neighbours, and the premises thus being occupied until 11 o'clock that night. On the 7th of June, 1859, an open-air meeting was held in Fairhill to hear one or two of the converts. So many thousands attended that it seemed advisable to divide the crowd into separate meetings, each addressed by evangelical minister of one denomination or another. The people stood motionless until the very last moment when an auditor cried in distress. 
Several others likewise became prostrated, bewildering the ministers who, had, who, having no similar experience previously, scarce knew how to help the distressed in soul and body. The clergymen spent all night in spiritual ministration, and when the sun rose, the following day was spent in the like manner. Such an awareness of sin and a need to get right with God. 160 years ago, 255 miles from this building. May God do something similar in our day. May it start with us. May God stir up our friends, our families, the people of the city, that they might have the same conviction of their sin and their spiritual state and hear God's word. What's the application? If you want revival, pray. Because this is a work of God. It's a five-word sermon in Hebrew. We have our prayer and worship night next Wednesday. Let's come and go, God, I don't want to just go through the motions of faith. I want you to have mercy and plead with him to change hearts. Never give up praying for your friends, neighbors, colleagues, family members who don't know Jesus. What's needed for revival? A weakened and empowered messenger, a contrite heart in the people, and thirdly, a compassionate God. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Notice how God's compassion, his relenting, and his anger, that previous judgment of warning, go hand in hand. Many people today think, well, if God is loving, how can he be angry? And how can he bring judgment on sinners if he loves sinners? But if you read the Bible at all, if you read the teaching of Jesus at all, you'll find out that God is a God of love, and he's a God of justice, and judgment will come on those that don't repent. If there was ever a reason not to doubt that, it's the story of Jonah and Nineveh, because Jesus quotes it to say of the certainty of judgment. He says this, as the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. I thought you loved people. Yeah, but he can still call out wickedness. It asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah, for Jonah was assigned to Ninevites. So also the son of man to this generation, the men of Nineveh will stand up where? At the judgment. With this generation, what will they do? Condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here, Jesus talking about himself. We shouldn't be embarrassed one bit by the idea of our, the fierce anger of our God and his final judgment. In his book, Exclusion and Embrace, Miroslav Volf, a contemporary Croatian scholar, who saw his fair share of atrocities in the Balkan Wars, helps us understand that it is impossible to forgive your perpetrators if you're the victim of a grave injustice without the idea of God's wrath bringing bullies to account. These words are now more relevant than ever before as we live in a world of war that's very close to our home. He says right at the end of the book, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. He goes on to say, if you object to this idea of God's wrath and judgment, he says, I, this is what Volf said years ago, I suggest imagining that you're delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is when the first paper that he wrote the book became from was being delivered. Among your listeners are people, I mean, this is so relevant, right? Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been plundered, then burned, then leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. In a scorched land, 
soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea that God is not a God of wrath will invariably die. Do you see, the only reason you don't like a God of wrath is because you live in comfort. You live in war, you hold on to it. You hold on to it. God holding bullies to account is a wonderful doctrine. I follow a lot of people on Twitter, and I follow this girl from Sky News, and a tweet soon after the Ukraine war started, and the tweet was this, a little picture of something atrocity in Ukraine, and she said this, there is a special place in hell for people like this. A Sky News reporter would find the doctrine of hell comforting as she sees the atrocities of Ukraine. You know, the, the doctrine of hell seems so offensive to the Western liberal mind until now. Now war's upon us, we go, yeah, God, get the bad people. May there be a special place, she says. But the problem is, who are we to point the finger and say others deserve that special place? Jesus says, if you get angry for unrighteous reasons, you are the equivalent of a murderer. Don't go and say there's a special place for them without putting yourself in the same boat. The war in Ukraine will teach us again the wondrous assurance that our God has fierce anger attached to his loving compassion. Rebecca Manley Pippert put it like this when talking about God's wrath. We tend to be taken back by the thought that God would be angry. How can a deity who is perfect and loving ever be angry? We take pride in our tolerance of the excesses of others. So what is God's problem? But love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. How can a good God forgive bad people without compromising himself? Does he play fast and loose with the facts? Oh, never mind, boys will be boys. Try telling that to the survivor of the Cambodian killing fields or someone who lost an entire family in the Holocaust or someone who lives in Mariupol. No, to be truly good, one has to be outraged by evil and implacably hostile to injustice. The two writers are saying the same thing. Anger and love are not two sides, of, are, two, are, not opposite side, are not opposites, they're two sides of the same coin. Jonah realized that, the people of Nineveh realized that. Will you realize that? And will you let the reality of God's judgment who have not sought repentance create an urgency in your heart to pray for them and to share the gospel with them? Or will you live as a universalist who goes around believing and hoping and everyone's going to be saved. God, will... They won't be. Jesus used the story of Nineveh to talk about final judgment. Judgment day is a reality. We need to share the message simply and clearly, calling people to get right with God through Christ. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was Jonah's message. Who knows how long we have left? We must urge people to get right with God. The Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah. Now something greater than Jonah is here. We can tell people about Jesus. Scott Sauls put it like this. The more threatening the cancer, the more aggressive a faithful doctor will be to get it removed. The more deadly the addiction, the more aggressive a loving family will be in confronting it. The more likely is a child to drink poison, the more aggressive a loving parent will be in screaming, stop. The more distant a friend is from God, the more direct a loving Christian will be in, converse, in conversation about eternal realities. 
I speak to myself and I speak to you all. Do you want to be loving Christians? Don't shirk from telling people the truth about Judgment Day, about getting right with God. Yes, we can journey with them. Yes, we can start at their starting point. Yes, we can listen. But eventually, we've got to say, people need to get right with Jesus to escape God's judgment. God is a God of compassion. That's the book of Jonah. But let us not presume on his compassion. Paul says in the book of Romans, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience? Contempt? Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, maybe he brought you here to find out about him. Maybe he brought you right here so that on judgment day you can say, I heard a message where the guy spoke about Jesus and forgiveness of sins and death being arrested. Come, receive the gospel. Put your trust in Jesus. Know forgiveness of sins. Have assurance of eternal life. Have confidence for the day when Jesus comes to wrap up this world and hold all bullies and all evildoers to account. I'd love to pray with you afterwards. Come. And if you're a believer in Jesus... Don't live as a universalist. God will come in judgment on the whole world. And his desire is that we would be spurred on in compassion to share the message, you know that sa- the message we know that saves people. I quoted earlier when Paul says, we have this message in jars of clay, this treasure. And he talks about, he goes on in chapter 4 and 5 of 2 Corinthians, talk about persevering. He says, don't give up. You know, the Corinthians obviously were like tempted to give up on evangelism, give up on sharing the gospel. And, 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 and he says, no, 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 you mustn't give up. Don't lose heart, he says. It's so easy to lose heart. And he says at the end of that passage, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are Christ's ambassadors. His message is not to Nineveh, but to Dublin. As though God were making his appeal through us, So let us never stop imploring people to get right with God. Which, by the way, is why we're thinking of doing and planning on doing a second congregation. We want more people to hear the good news. So how does revival come? How does revival come? A weakened and empowered messenger. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show the all-surpassing power is not from us but from God. We're emptied of all pride and we're filled with God's grace. It comes to a contrite people who don't presume on the compassion of God, but desperately cry out. Let's pray that our friends and our colleagues and our family members and many in the city would cry out to God. And it comes because of a compassionate God who says, now I'm making my appeal through you. Go and share that message. Jonah 3 gives us hope. Hope that he can use you, however inadequate and weak you feel. Hope that he can turn the heart of a tyrannical and murderous ruler towards him. And if not, will hold that person to account on Judgment Day and hope that God can bring many people in this city who often seem so far from him to know him. Let's not lose heart. Let's respond to God's call to be sent to the city. Do you want to stand? I'm going to pray and we're going to sing again.
Romans 2, 4, do you, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Lord, we say start revival and let it start with us again in repentance where we need to get right with you, where we need to confess our sins, where we need to say sorry for where we've rebelled and turned from you, where we've had murderous thoughts in our hearts about other people. We want to say thank you, Lord, for your great compassion that is so wonderful and wide and deep that you would send your only son to die in our place as a substitute for our sin. And we want to receive afresh that grace. I pray for any here, Lord, that don't know you, that know they need to get right with you, that today you grant them repentance, that they would turn to Jesus, put their trust in him, and discover new life and assurance for their eternity. And we pray, Lord, for this great city that we live in. We thank you for it. We thank you for the people. And we pray, Lord, that the reality of impending judgment would cause us to stir us on, would spur, stir our hearts and spur us on to share in the good news. Help us to remember that we are ambassadors and not to lose heart when people seem to reject us or turn a, have deaf ears, but to keep sharing your good news with others. We ask for your Spirit's help in this. In Jesus' name, amen.